God created Adam and Eve. He allowed them to live in a paradise called the Garden of Eden. But Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed Him. When they rebelled against Him, sin entered the world. Every one of their children and their children's children and their children's children's children were born with a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, because sin had infected humanity, Humanity became more and more wicked and more and more evil. As a matter of fact, humanity was so wicked, God decided to judge the earth by sending a great flood. He preserved humanity through Noah and his descendants. And after the flood, as Noah's family began to grow, we see the wicked heart of man is still there. Sin is still a very real issue that is destroying lives. There's evil and wickedness and depravity. And you look at that and say, did God have a plan? Well, God did have a plan. God had a rescue plan, a redemption plan. And we see that plan set into motion when God comes to Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through your descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. You say, wait, how did that, did that statement come to fruition? Well, God gave Abraham descendants. And those descendants became the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And then, through the Israelites, God sent a Messiah named Jesus. And Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for the sins of the world. So that if anybody from any tribe, language, tongue, nation turns to Jesus Christ, they can be blessed with forgiveness and salvation. So, so through Abraham's descendants, all the peoples of the earth have the potential to be blessed. That's God's plan. That's why he approached Abraham. Well, Abraham had a son named Isaac. God gave him and Sarah Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had a son named Joseph. And through a series of circumstances, God uses Joseph to preserve the Hebrew people. He brings them to Egypt, and they are preserved through a great famine. As they are there in Egypt, the descendants of Abraham begin to grow and prosper, and Pharaoh feels threatened by this nation, and so Pharaoh takes measures to persecute them and torment them so they could not become powerful. He even resorted to genocide to try to keep the Hebrew people from growing. Well, the people of God began to cry out to God. God, don't you see our pain? Don't you see our oppression? Don't you see what's happening? And God did see. And God did hear. And God sent a servant named Moses to Pharaoh with this message. Let my people go. And God moved with power. He sent ten plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. And finally, after the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh says, get out of here. Leave. Hebrew people, and so they begin to leave, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends his army after them to, to destroy them. Again, God's promise to Abraham is at stake. Is God going to, to build a people through whom he can send the Messiah, or are they going to be wiped out? Well, God again moves with power. He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through on dry land. And then when Pharaoh's army follows them into that, that pathway, 
God allows the waters to fall back on top of Pharaoh's army and decimates Pharaoh's army and gives the Israelites a great victory. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law to teach them how to live in relationship with him, how to make his name known to other nations. And God even said, I've given you a land to live in, a, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Go into the land. They got to the edge of the promised land and the people became scared and frightened by the, the other nations living in that land. And they disobeyed God and said, we, 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 we can't go in there. We don't believe that we can defeat them. And so God said, if you're going to disobey me, you're going to go into the wilderness until this disbelieving, unbelieving, disobedient generation dies off. For 40 years, God led them to wander in the wilderness until that generation literally died off. And then he raised up a new generation, a new leader, a successor of Moses named Joshua. And Joshua led them across the Jordan into the promised land. And God gave them great victories as they drove out the, the nations living there. And God gave them the promised land. At the end of Joshua, we see the people say, we will serve the Lord. Joshua even says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people say, yes, we will serve the Lord. We will be faithful to God. And Joshua ends on a high note. But then things begin to go very badly. God's people live in that promised land. They begin to turn their back upon God and worship false gods. And so to get their attention, God would send four nations in to conquer them. When the people were conquered, they would cry out, God, okay, we've been unfaithful to you. Would, you. would you rescue us from this foreign nation? So God would raise up a leader, a judge, they were called, who would give them military victory. And the people would turn back to God and say, thank you, God, we'll be faithful to you. But then, after a period of time, they would turn their back upon God again. And through the book of Judges, there are these cycles of disobedience where God's people keep turning their back to him. And God keeps judging them to get their attention and is leading them through these, these judges. Things were so bad in the book of Judges. Here's the last verse in that book. The last verse says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Unrestrained wickedness characterized God's people. Great spiritual darkness. But God was getting ready to do something for them. God was getting ready to lead them out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. He was going to preserve his people, protect his people, so he could one day send the Messiah for you and for me. And as we think about the, the spiritual darkness in which we find Israel, we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. That's the context of this book. The end of the period of the judges. Darkness, but God's about to move. God's about to do something. And that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So turn there with me. 1 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin our study through this Old Testament book. 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Verse 1 says, There was a certain man from Ramathame Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, 
the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. We're so grateful for your word, which which gives us a clear picture of you. Of who you are and the way you work. God, I pray that you would encourage us today. That you would build us up. That we would leave this place different than when we walked in today. To the glory and the fame of your name. Holy Spirit, we need you. So have your way in our midst. I ask you to establish my footsteps in your word. And I ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of 1 Samuel is a fascinating book. It divides into three basic sections. The first seven chapters, we find the story of Samuel, and how God uses Samuel. In chapters 8 through 15, we find the story of Saul, and the how God raised him up as the first king of Israel, and we learn a lot from Saul's life, good and bad lessons. The, the last third of the book, chapter 16 through 31, we find the story of Saul and David and their interaction with one another as God took the kingdom away from Saul and gave the kingdom to David. And so that's the basic outline of this book. So the first seven chapters revolve around Samuel and who he was and how he led Israel. And again, we're about to see God do something great for Israel. He's going to lead them out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. He's going to protect them, preserve them, prosper them, bless them. And we see that begin in chapter 1. And the person that God begins with is surprising. God begins with an obscure lady named Hannah. And what we find here is we find, as we study Hannah's life, the kind of person that God uses to do great things. Because God's about to do something great, and he's going to use Hannah to do it. And so if we study Hannah's life and, and see those characteristics, we can apply those characteristics to our lives in anticipation of God doing something great through us. Because God is at work in the world, and God wants to use you, and he wants to use me. So what I want to do is I want to give you five characteristics of Hannah that are characteristics of the people that God uses to work in the world. So who's God going to send to lead his people out of darkness into light? How's God going to send that person? How's God going to work? How's he going to initiate that? Well, we find that in Hannah's life. Number one, if you follow along with me in your notes, we find that God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people. Isn't that good news? Because, everybody look at me, you're looking at ordinary. And you're ordinary too, right? And so it's highly encouraging to know and to realize that God uses ordinary folks. Someone like Hannah. Look what it says there in verse 1. There's a certain man from Ramathame Zophim from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina. 
Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. There, there's, there's nothing distinctive that stands out about Hannah. She, she's not a princess. She's not found in a royal palace. She's, she's just someone that lives in the hill country of Ephraim. She kind of lives in the sticks. And she would go with her family to, to, to Shiloh and, and worship God there. But, but there's nothing that really stands out about Hannah's life. You would look at her life and say, well, she's ordinary. She's ordinary. And yet we're about to see God use Hannah in marvelous ways. Now, here's the question. Why does God use ordinary people? Here's the, here's the answer. Because this shows his extraordinary nature. You see, when, when God uses ordinary folks to do great things, people see beyond the person to the God working through that person. They see beyond the ordinary nature of the person that's being used to the God who is using them, to the God who is at work. And when God uses ordinary, people see his extraordinary power. And so God delights to use ordinary folks. Think about the disciples. They weren't the religious elite of the day. They weren't royalty. They were fishermen, tax gatherers. They came from, from different backgrounds. But they were just ordinary men, and yet Jesus used them to change the world. All through the Bible, we see God using ordinary people so that he can do extraordinary things, and he gets all the glory. Think about King David. We're going to find out in, in, as we go through this book that, that David was called from shepherding. A job with no prestige on the backside of nowhere by himself tending the sheep. And yet God raises him up and makes him the king of Israel. And so this principle is found all throughout the Bible. And it's found in the life of Hannah. Who does God use to initiate this great work for Israel? He uses a nondescript woman named Hannah. Now that's not how we think, is it? We live in a celebrity culture, and, and even in our Christianity, we think celebrity thoughts. We say things like this, well, if, if Tiger Woods got saved, man, that, that would be awesome. That would change things. I mean, boy, if, if Tiger Woods got saved, that would get a lot of people's attention. Or, you know, Michael Phelps won all these gold medals and set the record. And by the way, I'm a big fan. I love watching him swim. Michael Phelps, and boy, if he would give a statement about Jesus on national television, can you imagine the impact of that? Now, does God love Tiger Woods and Michael Phelps? Absolutely. I want to see them saved and give their life to Jesus. There's no question. But does God need Tiger Woods and Michael Phelps to change the world? No. You see, when we get to heaven, we'll find that it's not all about celebrity. Matter of fact, Jesus says, when we get to heaven, the last will be first and the first will be last. We will be shocked at the people at the front of the line. The people that God honors for their faithfulness. There will be people that we've never heard of from obscure corners of life that were just faithful and were used by God. God delights to use ordinary folks so that we can be a platform for his extraordinary nature. So be encouraged. I've been praying this morning that God would use the sermon to encourage you. If you're ordinary... You're a prime candidate to be used greatly by God.
But there's a second characteristic of Hannah that I want you to see here. Not only did God use ordinary people, uh, does God use ordinary people, God uses weak people. God uses weak people. Look what it says in verse 3. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. In Shiloh, by the way, that's the first time the phrase Lord of hosts is used in the Bible. Hannah uses it later in her prayer. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. So we see the, the difference here between between Hannah and Penina. This one wife had sons and daughters, so he'd have to give them a lot of the food from the sacrificial animals. They would eat from that food. And, but he would give uh, Hannah a double portion just to kind of try to comfort her. Because he knew she didn't have any kids. She could not bear children. She was barren. We see that Hannah's condition is inability. She can't have children. And in ancient times, this was a big deal. Women that could not bear children to their husband were, lived in great shame and great heartache. They were maligned by the culture. And Hannah could not bear children. She, she, was, she was weak. But did you know that God uses weak people? And God uses weak people because this shows his power. God uses weak people because when he uses weak people, we see how powerful he is. Because here's the reality. All of us are weak, aren't we? This morning I was praying and, and I was just confessing before God my weakness, my frailty. I just, I just feel so frail and, and, just, and weak and, and I, I just sense my own inability to do what God's called me to do. And, and I was just confessing that before God. And that's all of us. All of us are weak, aren't we? Life is tough. And, and, and all of us fall short of, of being who God's called us to be. And all of us have issues in our life, don't we? We all have things that, that we're not able to do that hold us back from our perspective. But did you know that God loves to use weak people? 1 Corinthians says that God uses the weak to shame the wise. To show that it's his power at work, not us, not our ingenuity, not our efforts. When God uses us and we're weak, it shows that it's him doing the work. So who gets the glory? He gets the glory. I love this quote from Dale Ralph Davis. He writes, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. I love that. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Let me say that again. Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. See, if you're weak, you're a prime candidate for God to stretch forth his hand and move in. And through you. He delights to do that. God is looking for weakness. So that he can show his power. So if you're weak. You're in good company. You're like Hannah. Hopeless. Inability. 
and yet God used her in great ways. Have you ever heard the name Joni Erickson Tata? She's a tremendous lady. She grew up as an active teenager, loving life. When she was 17, she dove into Chesapeake Bay and misjudged the depth of the water and had an accident, and she was paralyzed from the neck down a quadriplegic. And she right now is celebrating, listen to this, celebrating 45 years in a wheelchair. They say, wait, how could she celebrate 45 years in a wheelchair? That's not a cause for celebration, that's a cause for sorrow. And she says, I'm celebrating. You know why she said that? Because she's seen God use her weakness and inability as a starting point to touch countless lives. She's made such an impact for Jesus in this world. It's beyond description. And she knows that if she were not a quadriplegic, she knows that if she were not confined to a wheelchair, she would never have had the impact on the world that she's had. So she can say, I celebrate 45 years of inability. I celebrate 45 years of helplessness. I celebrate 45 years of weakness because God has used my weakness to show his power and touch the world. God uses weak people. That's good news for you and for me. There's a third characteristic I want you to see here. God uses hurting people. God uses hurting people. Look what it says in verse 6. Her rival, Penina, the other wife, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? We see here the pain that Hannah was experiencing because she could not bear children. And this other wife is rubbing it in. Now, to, to, to wrap our minds around the hurt and the pain that Hannah is experiencing, we need to understand the family dynamics. There's two wives. That's called polygamy. That's not God's plan. We're going to see polygamy throughout 1 Samuel. And it's not a pretty picture. And it's not God's plan. A lot of people read about that and say, well, they're polygamists. Well, listen, it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's just telling us what happened. It doesn't tell us that God wanted that to happen. As a matter of fact, God's original intention for marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman, married until death do they part. That's God's intention for marriage, right? Polygamy is a distortion and a perversion of God's institution of marriage. It's a sin. But yet, it happened in this time. Sometimes, among kings, they would practice polygamy to to build political alliances with other kings. Many times, kings would practice polygamy just for the perversion of it. Many times, men that were unable to have a child by their first wife would marry a second wife so that they could have children. To understand, you need to understand the stigma of someone that had no children in in this day and time. They were looked down upon, and and it was an awful thought for a man to say, I could come to the end of my life and have no descendants. 
they would often bring on another wife. Again, not God's plan, but it happened. It happened here with Elkanah. He brings on Penina so he can have some children. And the Bible shows us, through many examples of polygamy, the dysfunction that polygamy brings about. It's not God's plan. It always brings heartache. And that's what's happening here. There's heartache. This perversion of marriage is bringing heartache into this family. Hannah is experiencing great pain because of, of that polygamy. And, and you can, just reading this passage, you can just see, can't you, the, how Penina was rubbing it in? You can almost see her. She's surrounded by sons and daughters. Come on, kids, as she looks across the room at Hannah, who had none. And Hannah would go to worship with her family at Shiloh and she would weep bitterly. And, and Elkanah says, listen, I, you have me. Can I take your pain away? And the answer was no. Can I tell you this? All of us will experience pain in this life that nobody can take away. You know that? We live long enough in this sin-cursed world and we experience the troubles and the trials. and the difficulty. Every one of us will go through pain that no one else can help us with. People want to help, and they have good intentions, but it's so deep, and it's so real, and you're so broken that the hurt will just not go away. That's the situation of Hannah. Matter of fact, let me show you how how much she was hurting. Look what it says there in verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart, everybody say heart, why is your heart said, so her heart was broken. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, she, she, Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That phrase, greatly distressed, in the Hebrew is literally the phrase, bitter of soul. So her heart is broken, her soul is bitter. Then look in verse 15. Hannah replied to Eli, the high priest, we'll talk about him in a moment. No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. You see how, you see how devastated she was? Her heart's broken, her soul is bitter, her spirit is oppressed. She is consumed with her pain. She is living in total and complete anguish. And every one of us walk through seasons like that. Because life is tough. Every one of us will experience pain and hurt and brokenness just like Hannah. But here's the good news. God can work through that pain to do something great in your life and to use you to do great things in the world. If you look there on your notes, why does God use hurting people? This shows his sovereignty. God can take, because he's in control, our pain, our our brokenness, and weave it together into our life so that when it's all said and done, it turns out for our good and his glory. Only God can take pain. Only God can take our hurts and use them in great ways. Only God can do that. And that's what he does for Hannah. He meets her at her point of brokenness and begins to do something in her life so her life can touch other lives. I love this quote from R.D. Bergen. He writes, Human tragedy can can, can be properly evaluated and appreciated only when viewed with the consideration of the end results and ultimate purposes brought about by God. In other words, you'll never understand your pain until you understand God's using your pain for something good. There's an example of this in 
John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they, they pass a man who was blind. He had been blind since birth. And so the disciples want to stand here by this blind man and have a theological discussion. That's not real compassionate, is it? They say, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents that he's been blind since birth. You see, in their limited theology, if you had something like blindness, somebody blew it. And God was punishing their sin by giving this man blindness. This is a bad theology. It's not what the Bible teaches. But it's what they thought. And so here's what Jesus says. He said it has nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin. This man is blind, listen, for the glory of God. And then Jesus heals this man. This man becomes a platform to show people how great Jesus is. But for this man to show the greatness of Jesus, he had to endure blindness for his entire life. I'm sure there were times, probably daily, where he would say, Why? Why am I blind? Why am I hurting? Why am I going through this? We all get to a place where we ask the why question, don't we? Why is this happening? But the answer is, God's going to use your pain, if you'll put it in his hands, for his glory. He's going to weave it together in your life to do something great for you and to make his name known in a greater way. Only God can do that. God uses hurting people. And that's good news if you're hurting. Amen? There's two other things I want you to see about Hannah. Fourth, I want you to see that God uses prayerful people. It's just a biblical principle. God uses people that pray. And I can't think of any example through church history of any person that's been greatly used by God who was not a person of prayer. We see this illustrated in Hannah's life. Look what it says in verse 9. Hannah arose after eating and drinking in Shiloh, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. He's the high priest. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That's, that's prayer. She made a vow and said, Oh, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. I mean, here's this woman, her lips are moving, he hears no sounds, he says, something's wrong with her. She must be intoxicated. Look what happens next. Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. Now here's the definition of prayer. But I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Prayer is not speaking in some religious language. Prayer is what we see in Hannah's life, weeping bitterly, pouring out her soul before God. That's prayer. And she's bringing her brokenness, she's bringing her pain, she's bringing her inability, she's bringing her weakness, she's bringing her ordinary nature to the throne of God. And look what happens. 
Do not consider your maidservant, she says, as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. She's impressed by, he's impressed by her prayer life. And may the God of Israel grant your petitions that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went away her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Eli says, may the Lord grant your request. He's impressed by her prayer life. And here's what happens. Look in verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. She, married, she named him Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. So what happens? She prays. And God responds to her prayers. And uses Samuel, listen, to lead Israel out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light. God was about to do something great. Not just in Hannah's life, but something great in the life of the nation. And he responds to Hannah, listen, on the basis of her prayers. God uses prayerful people. Four times the prayers of Hannah are mentioned in chapter 1. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 26. Look in verse 26. She said, oh my Lord, to Eli, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the one who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. Look in verse 27. For this boy I prayed. Four times in chapter 1 it's mentioned that, that Hannah prayed. You see, God delights to work in concert with his people's prayers because it strengthens our relationship with him. God could have sent a Samuel to her or somebody else and led the nation out of darkness without, without any prayers being offered, right? God could have done that. But God not only works, he uses means through which he works. And one of the means through which God works is prayer. And he wants us to pray. And he wants to respond to our prayers because, because when we pray, we are, we are practicing our relationship with him. We're building our relationship with him. We're, we're building closeness and intimacy with him. So he wants us to pray. And again, I know no one in human history who's been used greatly by God who is not a person of deep, fervent prayer. In 1857, there was a man named Jeremiah Lanfear. He was a businessman in New York City, and his denomination said, we want to reach this, this segment of New York City, so... They didn't have any church work going on, so they sent this, this businessman to this area of New York City and said, will you be the missionary and reach this area? Well, he gets to New York City, he looks around, and the needs are great. He feels overwhelmed. He doesn't know what to do. So here's what he does. He, he prints up some flyers that say, on Wednesdays at lunch, we're going to have a prayer meeting. You're invited to come and pray. So he passes out flyers all over the place. Wednesday at lunch, he shows up to the room that was designated for the prayer meeting. No one's there. Ten minutes go by, no one's there. Twenty minutes go by, no one's there. But suddenly, here's some, some footsteps. And some men begin to trickle in, and there are six men there to pray. The next Wednesday, there's double digits. A few weeks later, listen, there were 10,000 people gathered to pray for New York City. And God sent a great revival there were thousands who were saved and swept into the kingdom because of Jeremiah Lanfear saying, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to pray. What if we prayed like that? What if we took prayer seriously? 
What if prayer was a part of the fabric of our lives? Where we were as desperate to pray as we are to breathe. What would happen in your family? What would happen in your church? What would happen in your community? What would happen in this nation if we really took prayer seriously? So you see the application, don't you? Pray! Get serious about calling on the name of God. Learn from Hannah. God uses prayerful people. How was your prayer life last week? Did you talk to God at all? If not, what's your prayer life going to look like this week? How's this? The witness of Scripture applied to your heart by the Spirit of God going to change things. What's it going to take for you to begin to take prayer seriously? And to reach a hand of weakness towards a God of power. God uses prayerful people. But let me give you one last thought. We'll be through. We've seen from Hannah's life that God uses ordinary people and We've seen from Hannah's life that God uses weak people. And we've seen from Hannah's life that God uses hurting people. And God uses prayerful people. But fifth and last, God uses dedicated people. Dedicated people. Look what it says in verse 11. Three times in this verse, Hannah uses a title for herself. Look what it says in verse 11. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your, here it is again, maidservant, but will give, one more time, your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I find it highly instructive that three times in this prayer, Hannah calls herself a maidservant. The Hebrew is it's just the word slave. She's saying, God, I'm yours. I'm fully surrendered to you. I am your servant. God responds to that mindset and God uses her because she was dedicated. And this is a biblical principle. If you're not serious about God, don't expect to see God do great things through your life. It just doesn't work like that. As a matter of fact, James 4.8 indicates there on your notes that God draws near to those that draw near to him. It's a biblical principle. If you'll draw near to God, then God will draw near to you. Because he wants to see if you're serious about the things of God. 2 Corinthians 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth and to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him, those who are completely his. God acts on behalf of those that are wholehearted. You see, God wants all of you. He doesn't want a piece of your life, a portion of your life. Listen to me. He wants all of your life. And until you are serious about him having all of you, don't expect to see him do great things through you. Do you wonder why you're caught up in a routine and just going through the motions, and and it seems that your life is just powerless? Maybe it's because God doesn't have all of your heart. You know what Paul loved to call himself in the letters that he wrote in the New Testament? 
he loved to call himself a doulos, which is a slave of Jesus Christ, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Can you call yourself a slave of Jesus Christ? Does he call the shots over every area of your life? Or are you just playing Christianity? We learn from Hannah, a maidservant, a slave of God, that God will draw near to those that draw near to him. That God responds to those that will put all of their life fully surrendered into his sovereign hands. God uses dedicated people. So here's the good news. God not only can use your life, listen to me, he wants to use your life. And all of us can identify with Hannah. We're all weak and we're all powerless and we're all hurting. We're all ordinary. We can identify with Hannah, but here's where Hannah separates herself from a lot of folks. Hannah prayed. And Hannah considered herself a slave of God. How about you? 